guys are so nice. Honestly, God, something wrong with you. Um, it is great uh, to see you and to be seen by all of you through the miracle of fiber optics. Uh, to be able to be seen by folks in North Shore and Elgin and the uh, Chicago Cathedral, Crystal Lake, and Aurora. I was actually in Aurora for the first time in my life a couple weeks, a week and a half ago. It's really nice how they're like, it, I felt very much at home because the church, churches that I've worked in in the past have kind of just always been on the edge of uh, some farmland and stuff, but that church is so fantastic. So for you guys in Aurora, God bless you. I got a chance to spend some time with John Bell down there, ate amazing food at a place I can't even remember. And there's a guy, Bill, who is, I was sitting in the, in the, in the lobby, I think his name was Bill, um, and he was cleaning up things, and so I was sitting in the lobby, and I was trying to work on a sermon, and he kept interrupting me joyfully. I mean, I really enjoyed talking to him the whole time, but I'm not sure this sermon was very good because of it, but that was really good. Anyway, so great for you guys at Aurora. I'm looking forward to coming down and seeing you again. Um, you need a Bible, and you need to turn it to Ephesians uh, chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be studying verses 1 to 9 today. Uh, Harvest Bible Chapel is a very, very different than the church I grew up in. Uh, I grew up in a church, I, I would call myself a nominal Christian when I grew up, a very, uh, very common in the United States in the 1970s and 80s. You go to church because that's what you do. You go to church because the people during the week who you work with will think that you're a good person because you did it. It sometimes greases the wheels for your business. It helps you network. And you go to church because you kind of believe the stuff, but church was a thing that you left, you know, on Sundays. It's a Sunday morning sort of ritual. I remember, in fact, uh, I, I didn't really like church as a kid, mostly because my mom used to make me wear this itchy sweater. I can still see it in my mind's eye, how horrible that sweater was. The whole time, I was uncomfortable. We had ceiling tiles in, in our church. It wasn't a very big church, but I knew the exact number at that time of those ceiling tiles, because every, every week, I would count them uh, while the pastor droned on and on about something I didn't. So I, I feel for you people right now. I know you can... The, here in, in Rolling Meadows, the ceiling is black, so you can't really count the tiles, but I look forward to seeing you count other things, I'm sure. Tic-tac-toe, my sister and I played tic-tac-toe, um, tied the whole time. After church, it was juice. I remember that. I remember going to the back. It was church juice, though, so it wasn't like that McDonald's orange juice, which was really good because it was full of sugar. Church juice is when they took the McDonald's juice and they kind of said, well, why don't we add, you know, five parts water to one part juice, and then you drink it, and you're like, man, you guys can't even get the juice right. <laughs> it wasn't, listen, church was just not, it was not a great event, it was not a great experience for me, and so, of course, I'm not going to take what I learned, if I learned anything, I'm not going to take it beyond Sunday morning and live in light of it during the week. Why would I ever do that? It makes no sense. If you wanted to have answers to the big questions about life, like uh, how should I relate with my parents, or how should I parent my kids, or how should I act in my workplace, I mean, this is the nitty-gritty stuff of life. If you wanted to have answers to those questions, you would not go to church. You go to church, you come home, you yell at the Seahawks, and if you know what the Seahawks were like in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of yelling going on. I mean, you guys know, the Bears are like that now, right? <laughs> Is, by the way, is there anything worse than being a Packers fan? And I'm only saying that because they are the most let down team ever. They get to the end and then they fall apart. So I know what it's like, right? I'm a Seahawks fan. I know. 
But you yell at the football team and you say things you probably shouldn't say because you went to church earlier. Church doesn't have a whole lot to do with the rest of the, rest of the week. I think Paul is trying his very best in the book of Ephesians, especially toward the end, to convince you that's not true. That if the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has impacted your life in any way, the knowledge that you have been transferred by his grace from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son, and that in that transfer you have become a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come, and you have a glorious future given you by Jesus who saved you, called you out, and is blessing you for eternity, if, if you've been transferred from that kingdom to this kingdom, there should be a change in the way you think, not just about spiritual stuff like prayer or Bible study or church, but in the way you think about parenting and the way you think about being a child and the way that you think about working or being a boss. And this passage is basically that argument. How does the knowledge of my transfer from the old kingdom of darkness where sin was the ruler to the new kingdom of light where Jesus is the ruler, how does that transfer influence the way that I think about the nitty-gritty stuff of life? The practical house stuff, workplace stuff. How does it help me be a better boss? This passage intends to answer that question. So Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 9, it lays out really easy to study. You're going to get first, words for kids. Second, words for parents. Third, words for workers. And fourth, words for bosses. Kids, parents, workers, bosses. Here we go. Words for kids. Verse 1, Ephesians chapter 6 says... The children, you notice, of course, where I'm getting the... He's addressing you, kids. So, by the way, if you're, if you're a child in the room, and what he means by this is somebody who is under the care of their parents. So, he's not referring to children in the sense that we're all children of, of, of our parents. He's talking in this context about kids who are under the care of their parents. So, children, stop playing tic-tac-toe. Right now, there's not enough ceiling tiles in the city. Obey your parents in the Lord. Um, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. It's not the first commandment. It's just the first one that includes, woo, that includes a promise. Can you guys pop that back up for me? I'll go over here and I'll read it for a minute. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So this is a quote from the Ten Commandments right here. Honor your father and mother that it, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's a quote from the Ten Commandments. And so the reason that he's quoting this is basically saying that this is the way it's always been, guys. This is God's heart has always been that uh, you honor your parents. It's right in the sense that God has always deemed it as a righteous act. And it's kind of obvious that it's right. They know more than you. I know you don't think that. I know it. But they do. They do know more than you. In fact, you get this really interesting. People think, oh, come on, disobedience to parents. This is not that big a deal. In fact, you get this really interesting passage in Romans 
1, uh, 28. This is the end of a section in Romans 1 where the Apostle Paul is trying to uh, make the argument that there, there is a kind of depravity of mind that happens among uh, people who are far from God. So that they think that things that are obviously wrong are actually right. That's a sign of a depraved mind. And so he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Okay, Paul, what kinds of things ought not be done? Well, they they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife. Strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Which one of these things just doesn't belong? Disobedient to Paris, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. My gosh, he put that in the middle? Really? He put that in the middle. Like it's one of the signs that you are far from God and you have a debased mind is that you're disobedient to your parents. Along with ruthlessness. Covetousness. Yeah. It's that important to Paul. This is right, he says. Did you notice it says that um, in the passage itself, it says, uh, help me out, help me out. It says that they are, uh, it says that it may go well with you. That's the reason you should do it, right? It's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. What does he mean by that? Well, it's actually a proverbial saying. Obedience to parents usually has good results. Amen? Every parent in the room is turning their child in. Amen. (laughs) Obedience to parents usually has good results. Why? Because they know what they're talking about. When they guide you in a particular path, They are trying to protect you from danger, and it's usually danger they know well about because they went into it. They speak, in other words, from experience. When I worked in New Zealand uh, quite a few years ago as a pastor there, I I got an opportunity to go spelunking. That is caving. Uh, You get to descend into a massive hole in the ground in the North Island of New Zealand, and I went with two guys who were really, really experienced in it. And he took us down in a hole. They said, we've been in this hole lots of times. Great. Go down in this hole. I have claustrophobia, so the whole thing, I've blacked out. And you climb through these little holes. At one point, they say, okay, we're going to have to swim for for it So because the cave comes down. And they're like, we promise there's going to be a hole below the water. So you just got to go down and back up. And I'm like, are you sure there's a hole? You just follow me. He goes down and goes back up. And sure enough, they were there. And I, we ended up climbing to an area until one of the guys in the front was like looking at the wall. And he was like, I don't know if I've been here before. And I, w- I said, oh, is that good? He said, no, no, no I don't think so. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, let's just climb up. So we started climbing up. And we got to a point where we could not go any further. There was a little ledge, and the only way out was you could see the tunnel starting to go uh, across a chasm. The chasm, I mean, I think about it now, and I think it was 50 feet wide. It probably was like four feet wide, (laughs) five feet wide. But all I know is I was looking down, and you were going to fall. I mean, it was was really high inside this this cave. And so I, I remember standing on the edge, and this guy, Peter, who was leading, 
He hopped across by show. He says, watch exactly as I do. Not been here before, but I've jumped a lot of chasms in these places. So he climbs to the edge, one position, holding the wall. He spins his body, and he hops over. And he said, do it just like that. All right. So the next guy who's been experienced, he follows it exactly. He hops over, does it exactly like that. My friend Alan goes over, and he hops over just like that. And I'm like, this is a piece of cake. You get to the edge, and honestly, I thought I was, obviously, you think you're going to die. And so you close your eyes, and you just think, I, why did I come here? What, what are, who are these people? And do I know them well enough to trust that they know what they're doing? So then I hopped over, and I'm, of course I'm here, so I, I made it. Um, This is a good image because it, what, what, I'm, what it's trying to say is that when, when you're following somebody who has experience in a particular act and they've done it over and over again and made mistakes along the way, when they come to something new, they can adapt. They know how, they know how to do it. You, so you trust people like that, don't you? You trust people who have experience and have spent all this time learning the hard way how not to do things. Peter told me later that he has fallen in many chasms. So he's learned exactly how you're, supposed, how you're supposed to do it. Yes, kids, those are your parents. I, I totally get it. If you're 15 years old, I know your parents look dumb and they don't know what TikTok is. I know that. But they've learned some lessons over the years regarding what dangers to avoid. It will go well with you if you listen to them. One of the things I say to my son all the time, he's uh, still back in Canada right now, he's playing some baseball, I tell him all the time, son, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. Right, he's got a girlfriend, son, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. You know how I know that? I have friends who've made that error, right? <laughs> You don't get, guys, don't get in fights with your spouses after 10 p.m. It's stupid. Nothing good happens after 10 p.m. It doesn't. Well, I once had an argument and we settled it after 10 p.m. Did you? Mostly nothing good happens after 10 p.m. I know that because of the experience I had. So kids, your parents have experienced stuff like that. And when they make their little things and dads repeat the same thing over and over again, they're trying to do that because they made the error. They don't want you to make the error. It will go well with you. You honor your father and mother. So those are the words that you have for kids in this passage. Here are the words for parents. Fathers. Now, the, the passage here says, the word, the word actually is used for fathers and for kids. You'll understand in a minute why he uses the term fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Provoke to anger. But bring them up in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke your children to anger. Let me deal with that first word, though, fathers. Here's the reason he uses fathers. And it's very important that you understand this. In, Roman, in the Roman society, um, there was a thing called the patrifamilia. Okay? That's, that's Latin. Pater. Uh, sorry, that's Greek. Pater, father, familia, the family. The paterfamilia was the king of the home. And when I use that language of king, I mean that he did no wrong. His expectations were always needing to be met. You did not wrong him, go against his will. I don't, if, I don't care if you're the wife, 
any of the children, workers, it doesn't matter. The father of the estate ran things with a heavy hand. The PBS, right, public broadcasting system, they did a, they did a, uh, like a history channel sort of thing with, with the Paterfamilia. And here's what they said. The, the Paterfamilia has absolute rule over, the household, over his household and children. If they angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, or even kill them. <laughs> you don't want to eat that? Well, right? <laughs> Only the Paterfamilias could own property, whatever their age, until their father died. His sons only received an allowance to manage their household. There's actually this, this tradition with the paterfamilias that when, when, when his wife would have a baby, the midwife would take the baby and lay it on the ground. And until the paterfamilias picked the baby up, signifying that he accepts the child into the family. Until that happened, the child was not part of the family. And it was, it was very common for a father to look at the child and to evaluate whether or not this child could be welcomed into the family. And some of that was practical, so they were like, we don't have any money and we're going to have not another mouth to feed. It's going to cause the death of several of us, so I'm going to leave the child there. And then sometimes it was just because they had some kind of deformity. You know, born with some kind of birth defect. So the father would look, look at the child like, you know, like he was looking at the rental car, make sure there's no dents. But if there were, he would leave the child to be deliberately exposed. Which often led to death, but more often led to slavery. People would come and they'd pick those children up and they'd raise them as their slaves. He's the king of his home. If there's any not provoking to anger, it is from children to fathers. Do not provoke your father to anger. And yet along comes the apostle Paul with his kingdom of light mindset and he says the most ridiculous thing, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. That's crazy. Children in the Roman world were to be seen and not seen. Right? I mean, they, 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 meaningless. They didn't actually count until they were a certain age. Losing one, eh. Fathers did, in many cases, love their children, but the potential for tyranny was always there. You don't provoke them to anger, and yet Paul says, actually don't provoke, promote, provoke the kids to anger. A.T. Lincoln, a commentator in the book of Ephesians, says, effectively, Paul's ruling out excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. The book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians were like, likely written very much at the same time. And so the apostle Paul sitting in prison as he probably was, was penning one and then he'd pen another. And so you have these parallel passages in both books and in the book of Colossians 3.21, this is his version of what he said, don't provoke the children to anger. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become 
discouraged, lest they lose heart. You know what that's like? Have a father who provokes you to anger and makes you discouraged. Dear friend of mine, I worked with her. Uh, she would tell me repeatedly about, about her dad, uh, who she loved. But when she was little, everything that she would try to do, and she is remarkably gifted, everything that she would try to do would be met with a, hmm, you didn't do this part right. I mean, that's a really nice picture that you drew, but do you notice how the colors are going outside the lines here? Yes, I like your boyfriend. He seems really delightful, but here are the five different things that I think are wrong with him. It didn't matter what decision she made. It didn't matter what she did, and she worked and worked and worked for his approval. It didn't matter what happened. He, she never did enough. She never did enough. And so when you sit and you talk to her today, and she's, you know, she's in her 50s now, and she talked to her today, she feels like she can never meet up to the standard that anyone has. She works harder than anyone else and yet talks about herself in the most demeaning ways. Constantly discouraged. I was saying goodbye to her when we came here and I told her, her husband was standing, I told her, I am so proud of you for how hard you have worked here and how good you are at what you're doing here. I praise God for you and I thank him that he brought you along to do this work to help me and to help this church flourish. And you know, she's quivering with tears dripping out of her eyes. Like you'd given her a cup of water in a desert. You know what that's like to be that discouraged? Because you can never meet up to dad's expectation. Now, some respond to that by saying, yeah, those stories I hear all the time, you know, the millennials are like, that's why I'm just going to let my kid do whatever they want. Pull, pull off the boundaries. And yet, that's not what Paul says here, right? Do you notice that he says, uh, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Look, discipline and instruction are not necessarily bad things. They're really good things, as long as they are kingdom of light-minded disciplines. If they're defined by your new position in Christ and an understanding of what that's going to look like in bringing them up into. Not a hands-off, but rather... A training, that's what the word means here, training in Christ. It means that you put boundaries in and explain the godly reason for those boundaries. You don't just say, here are a bunch of boundaries, I said it because I said it. You try to help them understand, these are the reasons for the boundaries. These are the dangers. The reason I give you my laws and rules for my household is because I want you to flourish. In the past, I didn't flourish because that didn't happen. If I give you the phone and you start looking at Instagram at age 10... It will not go well with you. So I know you're mad. I'm not going to give it to you. 
But all my friends, yes, I know all your friends, but all your friends don't have the priorities that we have. All your friends don't want to see you grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord like we do. So I'm not going to give it to you. Uh, My wife has told me a story about how her, she had a friend when she was in high school and uh, they went out on a double date on one occasion. And so they came to her house, my, my wife's when she was younger, th- their house, and her father, my father-in-law now, who is one of the greatest men I know, pastor of 30-something years, and he is, just loves the Lord. He invited the two boys in, which if you're a boy about to date the girl, this is like the worst thing ever that could happen, right? He invited them in, and he had them stand there, and he asked them some questions, talked to them kindly, just asked them some questions about themselves. Where will you be going? At what time will you have them home? So I can count on that? Yes, sir. <laughs> they go away. They come back. They have them there on time and things like that. Anyway, they're, the girls are staying overnight at my wife's uh, house, and they, they get talking. And uh, my, my wife starts talking about the, the evening, and this girl said, uh, uh, my parents don't know I'm here. But it's no big deal. They don't ever really care. And my wife said, oh, okay. And there was silence for a little bit. And then the girl said, you know, it's kind of cool your parents make rules for you. It's kind of cool that they invite the boys in. My parents never do that. Yeah, it is kind of cool. Because as irritating as it might be to the 16-year-old girl, deep inside, she knows, she knows that you love her and will not let anyone come in the way of her flourishing. So fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Third one, uh, words for workers. Uh, Bond servants. Uh Uh-oh, that word means slaves. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, before we get into this, I actually want to talk about what the command is here, but before we do, everybody, whoever reads this passage, it kind of sticks in our craw. This is one of those places where the Bible is accused repeatedly of being uh, horrible and immoral. So let me show you what I mean by that. Um, Here's a picture. I'm not recommending this Bible. This is called the Awkward Moments Children's Bible. Don't ever read this book. I'm not going to go go out and buy it. Well, we just, the pastor said that we should. No, I didn't. Um, Awkward Moments Bible is put together by a bunch of big skeptics of Christianity who are trying to point out that the Bible is filled with a bunch of things that you should never do in the modern age. It's actually a wicked book teaching wicked things. And so this is the passage or the page that they have on this passage. See it up here? Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and respect. Serve them at all times as wholeheartedly as you would Christ. Ephesians 6, 5. And so they put a picture of what it would look like in the kind of, if you did flannel graph. You got Jesus on the slave boat. The slaves, a black, little hands coming out of here. See, the Bible endorses that kind of slavery. I'm going to change that one. 
endorses that kind of slavery. There's a guy named Horace Gilgamesh who wrote, writes a blog. He said, what kind of loving God stands by as millions of his own children are bought, sold, and slaughtered, justified by his own laws? What kind of son of God would allow the father of the early church to utter a phrase such as, slaves obey your masters? It's a good questions. Like, they're legitimately good questions. So here's what I want to do. I'm taking a little bit of what we call an excursus. We were on the main road of our sermon, and now I'm going into the cul-de-sac. So let's drive down the cul-de-sac and talk for a minute about slavery in the Bible. Now, how do we Christians understand what the Bible's actually saying about slavery, especially as we understand the historical background? So I've got three big things I need to say to you about slavery in the Bible. Number one, slavery in the Bible is quite different from slavery in the New World. Significantly, it was never race-based. So I get it. The picture is saying, oh, Jesus was just like the slave traders of, of, you know, the the 19th century. No, because slavery was never race-based. People didn't go over and just collect a bunch of people because they had dark skin and take them to a new world so they can work with people with white skin. that's That's not the way it worked. Slavery in the ancient world was very, very common. The way you usually became a slave pretty much two ways. Either you get conquered by the Roman military and they take you back as their slaves, or you sell yourself into it. Because they did not have a thing called bankruptcy. Bankruptcy! They did not declare bankruptcy. Instead, if you owed money and you didn't have a way to pay it, there is a way you can pay it, right? Remember the times where the... You used to go and eat food, and if you didn't have enough money to pay for the food, you're going to have to wash my dishes. Yes, that's right. That's the, that's the way it worked. And so you would go into slavery for a period of time. Often you would work yourself out of slavery, and you would be manumitted. There was always opportunity for you to be what we call manumitted, freed from slavery. About 90% of the people living on what we call the Italian peninsula, that's Rome and the rest of Italy that we see today, Uh, They were once slaves, 90%. Like if you'd never been a slave, you're one of 10% of the population, probably probably very wealthy. The church... In the ancient world, the churches, as they began in the first century, they they were full of slaves. And actually, slavery was often better than destitution. You know, you could sell... If you sold yourself to somebody, they actually they treated you relatively well. You know, like if I own the car, I treat it better than a rental. Like I want it to last. And so they would give you food and health care and all sorts of other things. So they were often treated much better than just a plain servant, just a hired, hired servant. So while exploitation was common, you, advancement was really possible. So you got to be thinking here, like Joseph, who was a slave in Egypt. He's able to go into Potiphar's house and get to like a high-ranking position. He runs the whole house. In fact, he's basically a slave of Pharaoh when he gets to the second in command in the entire kingdom. He's a slave. And that was common. You could actually get that to that distance. The parable of the talents with Jesus in the story, one, he gives one guy a million, he gives you two million and five million, the master goes away, he comes back, and 
What did you do with it? These are slaves. The actual language in that passage is he gives that to slaves. He puts them in charge of his, his kingdom. So it's very easy. That didn't happen in the new world. But in the world of the scriptures, slaves were able to advance. That does not mean that slavery was awesome and that we should dismiss it. Not at all. But slavery in the Bible is quite different from slavery in the new world. The second thing you need to know is that the Old Testament law did not condone slavery but regulated it does not condone slavery, but instead regulated it. So there are things you can find out in Exodus 21. You find out that uh, kidnapping is forbidden. You can't go kidnap somebody and turn them into your slave. Uh, you, you can't abuse your slaves. In fact, if you knock the tooth out of a slave, you have to set them free. If you hurt their eye, you have to set them free. That was very different than the rest of the world around them. In fact, Hebrew slaves were, were, were freed in the seventh, seventh year. But the big question people have is, don't these laws, though, okay, you have laws written like this, you have a passage like Paul saying, slaves obey your masters, doesn't that tacitly endorse slavery? I mean, he has an opportunity at this point to say, slaves, run away! Masters, slavery as an institution is a total horrible thing and you should not do it at all. He, he could say that. Why, people ask, does Jesus command slavery, the Bible command slavery? That's the language that's used. Let me show you an example, though, of somewhere where Jesus is correcting people who think that there are certain things that are commanded, but they're not commanded, they're allowed. Matthew 19. I was on it already. I was still on it, still on it, still on it, still on it. There it is. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Right? So this is a quote from Genesis chapter 2. And said, therefore, a man shall, uh, he, he shall leave his father and mother, and he'll hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They come up, they ask him a question about this, and he says, let me point you back to uh, the original design. Before the fall, this is how God created marriage. And they said to him, well, why then did Moses, notice what they say, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're citing a passage in Deuteronomy, right after the fall. They're saying, in the law, Moses commanded it. And he said to them, notice Jesus' response, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, what? He didn't command you. He allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife is set for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So here's the argument Jesus is making. You guys seem to think that my word, that God's intention is for divorce to happen because Moses commanded it. But if you go back to the original intent, God hates divorce. He brought them together. Let no one separate them. The reason that Moses has to come along and give you uh, uh, certificates of divorce or allow it is because your hearts are hard. He has to now regulate it so that women aren't just being cast away everywhere. Is it his perfect ideal? No, it's a regulation of a really bad thing that's going on. 
And this is basically what's happening with slavery. God doesn't like slavery. No one owned one another in the created order. But we're hard-hearted, and we tend to enslave others. So God's laws curb the effects of that hard-heartedness. But then you get to the New Testament, and here's the third big thing you need to know about slavery. The New Testament condemns slavery and subversively seeks its destruction. Subversively means secretly. From within, from within. The New Testament condemns slavery and subversively seeks its destruction. So you have some really great passages of Scripture. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There is nobody in the Christian church, whether you're slave or free, who has a different access to Jesus. There's no hierarchy God's not a God of partiality, in other words. 1 Timothy 9, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and enslavers. This is what we call a vice list. Enslavers is in that. Don't tell me that the Bible affirms slavery when Paul says, nope, it doesn't. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Philemon, is a story, it's a book basically about a runaway slave who gets sent back to his master. Here's Paul's words to the master, for this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, the slave, was parted from you for a while, that you might, Philemon, you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a bondservant, more than a slave, as a beloved Brother, see, Christianity treats slaves and masters equally. And eventually, what you find is that slave owners are looking at their slaves and they start to think, well, if we're brothers, why do I own you? And so what happened in the history of the world, in fact, was that you had uh, slavery being undercut essentially by Sound biblical doctrine. William Wilberforce was a Christian man. Frederick Douglass was a Christian man. Martin Luther King Jr., a Christian man. Read the letters from the Birmingham jail. You tell me if that's not, the Bible's not fueling His views on slavery, and it is. So here's the thing, guys, guys, guys. The Bible does not condone slavery. It destroys it. It destroys it. If somebody comes to you and tells you, no, no, I'm just following the Bible because it says slavery. Rubbish, rubbish. You call on Frederick Douglass and you say, listen to this dude. Godly Christian man, knows what he's talking about. All right, I said that we went on a, on a cul-de-sac. You're like, that was a long cul-de-sac. Yeah, it was. All right, back to the main road. We're going to finish the sermon. Back to the main road. So I want to go back to the passage itself. I want to show you what, it, what it's saying then. So bond servants, right, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. This is the point I want you to see. Not, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants 
of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or he's free. Again, not by the way of eye service. Not by the way of eye service. The best way to, in the modern world to, to apply this is basically say, okay, it's a workplace. This is essentially what slaves were doing. They were doing work. So this is basically a workplace. So what do we learn about our workplace and how we should be workers? Well, uh, workers should do their work as unto the Lord who sees it, not merely for a boss who may see it or not. Man, I have not done well with this in my life. Okay, so I, when I used to be work as a, as a car rental agent in a very little town for, a, for budget rent-a-car. Okay? Lots of good stories about budget rent-a-car. But I was in the downtown location of a very small town, and I'm telling you nobody would ever come in to budget rent-a-car. It was not a good business. Bunch of cars out there, me waiting, not good. So I'm sitting there. And I had to figure out something to do because I have these eight-hour shifts. And so I decided, you know, at that time I had a PlayStation. So I thought, I just bring this PlayStation in. So I did. I brought the PlayStation in and I put, I put the, the monitor in a drawer, right? So I'd be sitting there playing the PlayStation. And as soon as the door would open, I'd just shut it, right? Well, the only person who would come through the door was my boss. And so I'd be playing PlayStation, PlayStation, FIFA, by the way, PlayStation, PlayStation, and then... He'd come in and I'd shut the door. And at one time I was so late with it, he, he opened it very quietly because he knew I was always shutting something when he came in he, very quietly and he was sitting and watching me play PlayStation. I'm like, oh, it's such a bad pass and stuff. And he stood there and he stared at me. And I went, shut. <laughs> he said, is that, is that what you do all the time? Oh, not, all, not all the time, right? <laughs> not all the time. So what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I am work, I am working for the eyes of my boss. This is not what you're supposed to do. What you're supposed to do is what Joseph did when he was in Potiphar's house. And his wife, Potiphar's wife, wants to come on to him, and Joseph's like, I, no, my husband's not around. Don't worry about it. He'll never know. No, I'm not going to wrong him. I'm going to wrong my God and wrong him. Are you kidding me? No. He's acting out of his relationship with God, regardless what his boss sees or doesn't see. And that's the heart of Christian working. Whatever our job, we work at it as for Christ who sees us and for whom we are ultimately working. This old missionary named Helen Rosevere, who uh, years ago she was in the Belgian Congo, great stories. Um, she, she writes some, some books that are just, anyway, fantastic. Helen Rosevere, she died a few years ago. She tells a story, though, when she was doing her medical training, she's a doctor, when she's doing her medical training, she was asked to be the one who cleans the toilets and the bathrooms. And so she goes into this bathroom, and she scrubs the floors and does all the work, and then somebody comes in and walks right over the top of her scrub floor with their dirty shoes and goes into the, into the stall. And, of course, she's angry, so she's scrubbing it again, and the person comes out with her, she scrubs it again. This happens over and over and over again until finally her, her boss comes in, stands there, and she's scrubbing it all the time. She writes this. She said, uh, my boss asked, for whom are you scrubbing the floor, Helen? Why, for you, of course, I said. Uh, no, my dear, if you're doing this for me, you may as well go home. You'll never satisfy me. See, you're doing it 
for the Lord. And he saw you the first time you cleaned it. That's tomorrow's dirt. Yeah. My work primarily is done for Jesus, who always sees. Finally, words for bosses. Short, just at the end here. You have this one passage. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he was both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Masters, do the same to them. In other words, have attitude and actions that are governed by your relationship with the Lord. Just like the, the servant is following uh, according to the rules that they have for the Lord, so, so do you. Their relationship with the Lord drives their service, so should it be with you. And here's the crazy thing about the Lord. He does not look on you, boss, like you look on you. He does not think of you as being high and exalted and everyone there to do your bidding. He does not view you that way. He actually views you the same as everyone else. You guys fly a lot, some of you. The, the, the plane is such an explanation of, of, like it's a physical representation of our modern society. There are classes of people, right? You walk through the front and they sneer at you as you go to the back and then they draw the curtain so that you can't go and see the Holy of Holies. And if you really have to go, you're like, oh, but I really want to go. And you try to pull the curtain back and the lady says, no, you cannot come in. You shall not pass. You can't come. It's, it's for them. And you're reminded, over now they've got another compartment. This, this is the economy plus, right? Because it's got plus. You got to get crackers. And then, there's a, and then there's the cattle in the back. This is our society. We break everything down according to partiality. The people who've got money get to have the most power and most influence. And there's some middle ground people who kind of have influence, but they still can't use that toilet. And then there's everybody else. A plebe. And this is the way we make most of our decisions in our society. And in workplaces especially, the most important people are the ones at the top of the ladder. And Jesus comes along through the Apostle Paul and says, it's not how Christians think. It's not how they think. The boss recognizes that he works for Jesus with these people. And yes, he's responsible for some things. And sometimes he has to be hiring and firing and all that kind of thing. But even in that, he's a brother. He's a sister with those people. He, he, he is a fellow human in many cases with those people with all the same faults and all the same difficulties and Jesus died for them just like he died for you. So here's my question as I finish. Are you a jerk to work for? <laughs> Listen, you know, you know, boss, you know that God's watching, right? Behind the closed doors and everything, you know he's watching. You know, he put you in that position and he holds you accountable for how it is that you use that power. You don't leave him behind on a Sunday morning so you can go to work on Monday and scream at everyone and treat them like they're the plebes there to do your bidding. Because you've been moved from one kingdom to another. Don't take your cues from what you used to be. Take your cues from who you are. You are a bondservant of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word and your grace. Practical stuff, Father, and also some 
deep dive apologetic stuff. <laughs> I pray, Father, that all of that will come together in the minds of these dear people and will, will be a, an encouragement to them to continue to follow you, Father, to continue to love you with the nitty-gritty of their lives. Help us to leave our church this morning, not leaving behind what we've learned, but instead, Father, as people who've looked in a mirror, seen what we're really like, and submit ourselves to that image and to the Savior who loves us, who bought us with a price. And we pray it in his good name. Amen.